So for all of us who have been in the faith long, Ephesians, exciting book with some scary words, right? Election and predestination and all of those things. But note as we begin, Paul's purpose is to encourage the believers, isn't it? So that you and I would leave with such a confidence in the God who saved us. So what is it this morning that the goal of any man who stands behind a place like this, our, the goal is this, your love for God, which flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. My goal is that when you leave this place this morning, you're more fully fixed. And your faith and confidence is more fully resting on the power of God. So may that be the very thing that the Spirit does. And we're privileged this morning, aren't we? We sit and sing and then hear Him declare His glory through the thunder in the background. <laughs> what a blessing, amen. <clears throat> so my purpose in Ephesians will be for the next few times through the year that I preach will be to answer this particular question why are we Christians first? In a world where we can be many things, husbands, fathers, mothers, wives, granddads, grandmothers, we're an employee, we're a business owner, we can be a conservative, we can be a moderate, we can be a Republican, we can be a Democrat, we can even be an independent. We can be a Baptist or a Presbyterian. A 1689 confessional Baptist at that. Southern Baptist. Many, many titles. And when many times we take, have a resume or have to write when we're somewhere what we are, do you ever think about what you are first? What most captures and flavors and influences you? Maybe you've never thought about that. But my goal is that through this book that you would come to the great conclusion of the scripture is that first and foremost you're a Christian. Not a Baptist, although that's important. Not merely a father, a mother, or any of those other things. First and foremost you're a Christian and it influences everything you think, say, and do. But my challenge to you is that through this book I uh, share on the different times that I'll be preaching. It's the challenge for us to wrestle with these truths, to read and pray. And as the apostle would say, until we are able to drink the nectar from the flower, that's the truth of it. You see, we are what we are and what you are first is what you've thought yourself to be. And what's most important and prominent. <clears throat> You see, the goal of Paul is to bring his readers to a place of worship where they understand the grace, mercy, kindness, and love of God displayed in Christ so that they go through their life first and foremost a Christian. You see, some of them were slaves. Some of them were slave owners. Some of them were rich, wealthy, poor, all kinds of things, just like you and I. But the challenge for us is what most identifies us in this life now. And I know for many of you, you would agree with me, being a Christian is what you are first. 
and others coming to that place and hopeful that you're here and an unbeliever, you will see the blessing and privilege of what it means to be called a Christian. Well, now, as we come to this first section, let me say this. I ask the question, does God really want to save sinners? And it's important in this understanding of why I call myself a Christian first. To know that many, and maybe you and some others, think along the lines of something like this. We come to the New Testament. We clearly see the person and work of Christ. On every page, he is put forth as Savior, Redeemer, lover of sinners. He dies on their behalf. He ministers to the needy and the downcast. The little woman is healed from the issue of blood as she touches the hem of his garment. The despised, the weak, find their comfort from Christ. We seem weeping over Jerusalem. We see nails and swords taken by him for his people. We see him take children on his knee, touch the leper, feed the multitudes. My, my, certainly we see him seeking and saving, even from his own words, the lost. He's tender, he's approachable, he's full of compassion. All of these things we see. They're recorded here. We're left with the impression that he loves sinners. And clearly, rightly so. But sometimes in our minds, it's as if God's the God of the Old Testament. Who, as our dear pastor has been telling us, brings plagues and destruction. Who calls his children into a land and tells them to destroy everything. So maybe our thought is something like this. Christ is the nice one. God is the one who has to punish. And so we're left with some sense of the idea that God's arm has to be twisted by Christ. Christ has to keep telling the Father, don't destroy them, let me make them better. We see Moses in that position, right? Have you ever had that thought? Has that ever come across your mind? Has it been at times maybe a consideration? The Bible wants us to put that in the right perspective this morning. Does God really want to save sinners? When I come to understand that question, then it helps me understand why. Of all the things I want to be identified by, being a Christian is the first and foremost. So then we'll see in Ephesians chapter 1, this very thing answered in a most clear and defining way. So as we leave this morning, there will not be a question about what God's design and purpose or plan is and what that should result in our lives too. All right? So if you'll turn with me there. In the preceding months, the next time I speak, I'll take care of 
sharing with you the first three verses, actually two verses, but today we're going to start with verse 3, okay? And I'm in verse 3 just going to share with you a couple of things to lay the context of what it is that I'll be sharing this morning. Paul in this particular book, as you'll note, goes into many places of prayer and this one is no different than that. And for you English teachers, my, my, you would, he's got one long sentence here, doesn't he? Starting with verse 3 through verse 14. So it is, my brother has saved me from the most deadly disease as a, that a preacher can experience. It's called dry mouth. Thank you. <laughs> So then in verse 3, Paul begins, and it's clearly Paul leading his people in Ephesus into a prayer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. The word. So then verse 3 is kind of a capsule, encapsulates all that he says then in the next Several verses, and it is one long sentence, so it's Paul breaking out into this understanding of what God does for lost people like ourselves in salvation. And it's a glorious thing, and he says here, first and foremost, for you and for me, what it will lead us into. Notice, he starts himself as he considers this reality. Blessed be God. Any of you Ever heard someone eulogized? That's the word. What do you do when you eulogize somebody? You speak well of them. Very often it's difficult to find some things to speak well of something about, right? Because it's the conduct and character of an individual that's spoken of when we eulogize somebody. And it's this very word that we're called to and Paul expresses as he begins this section of Scripture and goes into this one long sentence. He's speaking well of the Father, he says. And notice how clearly indicates this very thing. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ indicates clearly the one that he's about to explain and why it is that we are called to speak well of him in this way. What has he done? You see, when we speak well of someone, it's because they've said something or done something. Or very often we speak of their life and we honor them in a right and appropriate way. Come Mother's Day, then we'll honor the mothers. We'll speak well of them. Those who have honored their calling well. It's the very idea. So if you were asked this morning to speak well of God in the matter of salvation, where would you start? And how then would you consider the things that he's done for us as sinners? 
You see, to grow in our appreciation and result in our worship of who he is, it's critical that we understand what he's given us. We faithfully come on Sunday mornings and we hear, whether it's Thad or Pastor Keith or Pastor Mark or others who stand here, Larry or John, and we hear the deeds of God. And it's that accumulation of those things put in right, proper perspective that enables us to open our songbook or to watch on the screen and to sing entire hearts with it. And to be as the psalmist said, and I remember Tim Hoke once preached, wholehearted in what we say and sing. That's his point here. So I hope from the, through the end of this, you will be able, like Paul, to come and say, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us. Paul is blessing God for the things in which he's received from him. In for what? Who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. How confusing. If you would give me a few dollars, I'll understand that. If you make me better, I'll understand that. But how do I understand this? That's the key, isn't it? So if I'm like Paul and going to speak well of God, the source and seat and place of the blessings of which he speaks is here what he's trying to help us see. You see, it says in other places in Scripture that we might get a thought about this reality. Our minds are to be set in heaven. The treasure that we lay up is to be in heaven. We are to be citizens of another country, which is the citizens of heaven. With Abraham, we are to be those looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. That all sounds good. How does that look in your life? Say, preacher, I'm worried about my 401k. I got to retire in a few years. Man, I would love spiritual blessings, but right now I'm worried about some physical ones. And I don't believe in any way that this statement is in distinction to the physical things that God does for us. Raised up our brother Caleb from sickness. I look around this room and there are multitudes and many who have experienced in huge ways and all of us daily God's blessing in many, many ways. Right? He feeds us. He clothes us. He keeps us. He heals us. He helps us. He's our encourager. He's our keeper. He's everything. Certainly he is all of those things to us. But here the distinction is that all of the things of which Paul's about to tell us about what God has given us and how we ought to rejoice in them are things that have, in one sense, a different reality to them. They're spiritual. And they come to us from the heavenlies. <clears throat> spiritual in the sense they're blessings of grace. They're divinely ordered and they're applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Is what some of the commentators said. Heavenly in that they have their origin and their seat in heaven. Those things are reality. And the statement of 
in Christ gives us that very indication. All of these things of which we're about to discuss are things which you would have never considered before, Paul said. Were it not for God revealing them to us by the Spirit in Christ. You might have recognized, as even the pagan world, that your food and rain came from heaven. Someone other than yourself sent that. And even as Christians, we understand, like I just mentioned, all the physical things of which we've enjoyed and received. But how often do we think of these things? And just how often do we consider their nature and their substance? They're spiritual in nature, and they come to us from heaven directly. And so that, you see, is the context of the next Several verses which we'll be discussing. So put that in your mind. And the first thing which we'll note is this. The Bible here declares God's purpose in three different particular places. Listen. It's clear what Paul is trying for us to see. It's God's place in the plan of salvation. This ideal of purpose, which is mentioned in verse 9b, you'll see it there, according to his purpose, which he set forth in himself. And you see it in verse 5b, according to the purpose of his will. And verse 11b, According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have here clearly without thought what God's motive is. How do you like your motive to be questioned? How hard is it to determine as you live out your life, those who do kind things for you, or those who do other things for you, you ask the question, what is their motivation? Have you ever had something done to you kindly? And you find out later that the motivation was completely not a good one. The Bible here completely gives us an indication of what God's motivation is. And this whole thing of salvation... It's amazing. That's what Paul was moved and stirred by. It's the very reason of which he turned and gave God praise and thanks. God didn't hide his purpose. He revealed it in Christ. And that here you see is the very word. The word is that salvation comes to us by by the design and purpose of God And it's this statement that that word indicates. It's God's will. It's his delight. It's his good pleasure. You mean salvation didn't come to us because God saw a situation where he could merely intervene. The people needed some help. No, it was his good pleasure. This design of salvation. It's It's like this, the idea of purpose. Some of you, your wife looked at you one day while you were in the bed and she said, Honey, I want to build a house. You see, that was never in your mind. It was in hers. 
It was conceived as a desire in her heart. That's this very idea. This purpose declared that it was God's design, you see. Not Christ as he looked down and said, Oh my, these men have sinned. What are we going to do? God said, I don't know. Let's poll the angels. And he sent out a questionnaire and he got back. The best thing to do would be to save them. Not at all. Not at all. You see, the very idea here is the fact that all of this came from the heart and design of God. It was his desire to save sinners. That's the very thought given us in this place. Notice then how it says, according to the purpose or his good pleasure of his will. It's that ideal of will which speaks about out of his heart or emotion. It was the design of God flowing from his love. It's much like John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. So as we think of all of us sitting on these pews, we look around at the different folks and we think, why all of this? It was the purpose of God. Long before time began, and that's indicated by the word, before the foundation of the world. Why in the world did Paul break out in such praise? It was this reason, you see. Because God had revealed that this way of salvation and its conception was in his heart and design alone. Alone? The Bible says here, clearly, alone. It was his will. Notice verse 9b. According to his purpose which he set forth in himself. Clearly then again putting forward the ideal that it was God's determination to deliver. To save. It was God's good pleasure to do all that's been done. For sinners. So as we think through the motive, we can list many. Well, God felt sorry for people. Well, God was lonely. Well, God was this, and God was that, and God was the other. And God old man something. The Bible clearly here says why he did it. Nothing outside of him. Not the need in the individual. Not anything beyond this person or being. It was inside of him. This thing that we enjoy called salvation. All of these spiritual benefits that have come to us in Christ came first into the heart of the Father. Notice then in verse 11b as it expands somewhat this idea According to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. What of those in Ephesus who sat there thinking about the things they had in Christ? Week in and week out, day in and day out, facing the challenges that life presents. 
hearing the multitudes of things that come across our ears. Just like you and me. What was their thought about all of this? They gather and they sing. They hear preaching and teaching. So what is all of this? Paul said it's the very thing of which God purposed before the foundations of the world. It's the thing you see that was the apple of his own purpose and heart. God is not arbitrary in his plan, these verses indicate. But he's thoughtful and particular. It wasn't, you see, after Adam failed that this was in his heart and his design. It was long before. His heart's desire and his good pleasure conceived the ideal of the whole of salvation. And when I read this statement, I thought, man, it captures this reality. The purpose is God's own free determination, originating in his own gracious mind. How then do you think of the Father in light of redemption or salvation or the work of Christ? Do you see the reality that conceived in his heart was this? From before eternity, you see you're the delight of his eye. In that sense. You weren't an afterthought. The church in no way is that. It's the very thing. That the Bible indicates. That he had set his heart on. What a matter for praise. So in this. We understand this kind of thing. We conceive things in our mind. We think through things, things come to us, and then what occurs? You ever heard of a person that's um, an idea person? They come up with all kinds of ideas, right? They want to do this or this or this or this. So we see here God conceived this design of salvation in his heart. But I want you to notice in the second place in what moved Paul to praise here and what was such an encouragement and what he understood to be a spiritual and heavenly blessing was that not only in the design of God was this thing conceived. But there then came from it a plan. If any of you have ever been in the Business of trying to erect something. I know Mark tried his hand at hanging drywall. didn't work well. So he ended up being a pastor. <laughs> his dad gave him that counsel, I believe. Some of you have worked in different places. And, you know, you got some guy that has an idea. And he says, uh, I just want you to build that. Like Rayanne said to Jim about her kitchen. I just want it fixed. Boy, it can be hard sometimes to get what is in the mind of another on the plans of a piece of paper and to get those things connected. So how did this thing all work out? It's amazing. You see, not only was it before time began in God's design, 
for salvation. He determined in himself the good pleasure of his own purpose. But notice also, here his plan is described. And you see it's in this that Paul finds a great reason for the church to grip and grab and praise and worship. Look in verse 9. So we have God's purpose clear in these passages. Those three places, those three verses indicate that very thing. You as a Berean can go and search that out for yourself and see that that was God's intent. And then when you see conceived in his heart was this purpose. Notice then he put into place this plan. He didn't leave anything undone here. How often we do, right? I get something in my mind and it never ends up being a reality. Aren't you glad that God's not like that? What He determines to do. He works all things after the counsel of His own will. Nobody can withstand or stand up against His purpose. That's the statement in those three verses. But in this place, you see, in verse 9 then, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This word, plan, dispensation, a stewardship, a management of a property, the very thing of which we understand. Brandon manages, or is a maintenance man, and he has to carefully take care of all of his equipment or it comes apart. So he is, in a sense, what this word indicates, a steward of that equipment. So it is in, with this idea, God not only purposed it, He didn't leave it to be planned by another. He took that responsibility on himself. The Bible indicates in this place that he set forth this plan. Which, when studying this word, what helped me most about this was it's the thought of the arrangement of the parts of a building. Or you can say for your English teachers, it's the arrangement of the parts of speech in a sentence. And how important is that, right? If you get all the parts backwards, do you understand what someone said? No. You can't put the roof where the foundation goes and have anything that looks like anything. This is the Word. One writer put it like this. It's a great household of which God is the master, of which He has a certain system of management wisely ordered by Him. So God then has this plan. And it's this, that pause, he looks at it, and as he, by the Spirit, was given an understanding in it, and as he carried it to the ends of the earth, wherever he went, it was then for the church a matter of praise and great confidence. You see, some of the church had heard the neighbors down the road at the synagogue say, well, listen, God's purpose is the Jewish nation. 
you bunch of little Christians who gather up in a little house. There's nothing to that, you see. They heard that, right? Don't we hear that today? God's plan is something bigger than a few scattered slaves and slave owners and business people and others who've been confused by this thought of a resurrection and gather up in these little houses across the nation or world. It's bigger than that. And so they would think. And it was Paul that comes in this place, helps them understand God's plan in this way. That God had so ordered things, you see, to bring the past all the things necessary for their complete salvation in Him. What was His purpose? But you'll notice in this particular passage of Scripture, there are two words that you will see mentioned over and over again. It's the words, in Him. In Him. In Him. In Him. What was God's plan? Well, we can together agree that whatever this plan is, it's clearly indicated by these two words, in Him. Now we know in this passage what he's talking about when he says in Him. It's in Christ. So we can come to this conclusion, what God purposed and conceived in His heart. And He was putting into place in the way of a plan. All of this was in this one. You understand that thought. If you have a desire, you make a plan, and you turn it over to a foreman. This, there's some building terms in here. You give that responsibility to that particular building or structure to another And so it was that God, as He planned this thing, He clearly indicates to us how this plan comes to us. And notice, it says, in Him. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's clear to us that this is the reality that everything that's come to us from God, when His heart conceived the reality of this salvation, we then receive the benefits of it, of which Paul turned and gave blessing for in Christ. Its bestowal, its nature, its seat, not merely through Him, but was actually in Him. It's the mystery of this union, of which Jason was speaking about this morning in Sunday school. This ideal of this union of all of these parts, of these pieces of this plan, in Christ to us. So we're going to see a couple of these things, and I can't spend long on any of them, obviously. But it is for us then to see, and in the future, go deeper into what these things are. But how in the world does all of this come to us? The plan. How was it then that the Father... Conceived this thing was to bring it to pass. 
in Christ. In two ways, I want you to note this. The first thing is how it comes to us individually and in particularly. The second thing is how it relates to the world as a whole. You see, sometimes we get this ideal of God's plan as if he's just saving a few folks across the world, gathering them up, and that's it. But we've learned in this church and our pastors have been so faithful to help us understand salvation in a much bigger way. God's redeeming everything that has fallen. Not just some things. He's redeeming not only a people for his own name, but the, in the end, the new heavens and the new earth. Everything that sin has touched in Romans 8 is clear. That creation itself cries out. It one day will be delivered. So in this statement you see in God's plan, it's that in him all of these things then find their fruition and come to pass. So what are some of the things you'll see in the early verses that we've been chosen or selected or elected in him? Our election or our being chosen is to a particular purpose and the Bible says that you would be holy and blameless before him. As he gazes on you, what he sees in you, in him, is that you're holy and blameless. How's that possible? Well, you see, that's a part of the reality and the glory of the plan. Not only is it that we find ourselves in this particular place like this, before time began, Selected in him before time began God's purpose as he gazed upon us and looked at us. How do you feel about yourself? Can you call yourself, as Paul called the Ephesian church, saints? Would it not make you uncomfortable this morning? To say of yourself, and if I ask in here, how many saints? Please stand up. You jumped up with both hands. That's me, brother. No, you're fearful, aren't you, very often. And rightly so, you know yourself well. But the point is that in the plan and in God's purpose, you, you see, are a saint. Set apart by the work of God in Christ. How many of you want your heart and your life and your phone and what you do gazed upon? Would you like somebody to see what you thought yesterday? All of your thoughts? Would you want them laid out on the stage or put up on the board? And this morning our class would be the thoughts of Bobby Bray. Or even Pastor Mark. Or of my own. Boy, would we not in some sense be quite fearful if that was the subject of our today's talk. Your thoughts. But this passage of Scripture indicates that before God and in this plan and the design of His purpose, that as He gazed upon you in Him, this is what He saw. Holy. Blameless. Whew. Notice next, the Bible said not only that is that that we would be set apart and seen in that way, but that God would bring us to himself in this kind of understanding in the way of adoption. 
Any of you have adopted children? It's a beautiful thing here, isn't it? This idea is foreign, you see, in the Jewish culture, but not in the Roman culture. And it was that Paul understood and came to grips with this reality that in him you were made sons and daughters. We know and understand have seen it and read it on many occasions. But I tell you, brother and sister, to come to grips with exactly what that word means changes the way we open our mouth and praise the one who's accomplished this very thing in us and for us. Not only adoption, the Bible says here, but one of the spiritual blessings that he speaks of in verse 3 is also redemption. We know little of this word because our culture knows little of these things. You see, we borrow more than we owe, and what do we do? We borrow more than we can pay back. I mean, and what happens? What do we do? <clears throat> Take bankruptcy, right? They don't come and get you, do they? No. You see, there was a time, and there was a day, and there was an understanding, and there was a reality where people... Owed more than they could pay. Somebody had to redeem them. Maybe in the back of our minds, we understand our Christianity in some sense the same way. Lord, if I owe anything at the end, what I'm going to do? I'm just going to take bankruptcy. I'm going to file chapter 13. And surely you'll see me. And you'll think, he's been such or she's been such a good person. And you know, uh, man, I'll just cross it off. But you see God's plan. And this understanding and idea of salvation, this word redemption, which comes to us as a spiritual blessing in Christ, is the very reality that we've been purchased with a price. In the future, understanding that word in some sense and how much it did cost. And what the value of it is to us. I don't know if you recently heard the other day at a, I think it was a garage sale. That a guy had a card. Have any idea what it was worth? Threw it out on the table. Babe Ruth card. Just an old card. To that guy, it wasn't worth anything. He probably didn't even know who Babe Ruth was and probably didn't care. He thought hitting a little baseball with a stick was stupid. I'm assuming. I don't know that. There's another guy that came by that saw that. He knew who he was. He knew. How valuable that would be if it was original. So he bought it, I think, for a dime or whatever it was. And it was worth four and a half million dollars. How many of you going to garage sales next Saturday? <laughs> That's not the point of the sermon. <laughs> Some folks look at this and say, I wouldn't give you a dime for all of it. How much is it worth to you? This plan as you look at it. 
It's like, ah. This plan won't work. This plan won't work. Why? These people, they ain't going to stick. They're not really going to change. You see, they got too much wrong with them. That's the whole point, isn't it? You got too much wrong with you. I got too much wrong with me. I'm not going to stick. I can't make it. And if he gets to looking real hard, he's going to see all kinds of stuff. So I hate to tell God that, man, I know what your purpose was, but buddy, you just don't have much to work with here. All the two-by-fours are crooked and the nails are bent. I just don't think this thing is going to work. Oh, you're exactly right. Had it not been given to the right person, had the right man not taken up the cause, had the plan not been put in the right man's hands, it wouldn't work. Everything's too crooked. Everything's messed up. There's nothing to work with. Fortunately for us, as we look around and come to this reality, as we look across the pew, as we look inward in our hearts, as we come to this deep sense of reality that everything is crooked and the nails are bent and there's nothing to build with here. Then we understand why 12 times Paul wrote in the particular reality of this plan as God set it forward in him, you see. Outside of it being in him, it won't work. Everything he's got to work with is faulty and messed up. But as we understand this grand reality that not only is God before eternity, before time, before the world began, selected us in Him, set us apart to be holy and blameless, brought us into His own family, purposed to pay the price of our redemption, us becoming His very own inheritance, sealing us with the Spirit of God so that there was no way we could fall away. My, my, what a plan. You see, it's this very reason that moved the heart of this apostle with such delight and praise. You see, this is one of the key elements in why when somebody asks you what you are, you might well be an American or whatever else you are. We are many of that, and we're glad for many things. But the first and foremost is, as I look into this reality, as I understand God's motive and purpose, when I see His plan, when I come away with this understanding, I can't wait to tell somebody what I am first and why. I'm a Christian. And so gripped with this truth, it was that these people, the Thessalonians said, it turned the world upside down. 
<clears throat> so then what should this result in? I can't help but think of our dear beloved Pastor Ted at this point. What would he always say about theology? It had to turn to what? Doxology. He didn't invent that. He got it from the writers of Scripture, right? That's right. And that's why we love it. And so all of you see these things. And why do so many... And why are so many so fearful of like a first chapter of Ephesians? Because there are words in there that scare them. Like, that, like election or adoption or predestination. Was Paul's intent to confuse the church? <laughs> Not at all. But to draw them into this place where they join their voices together. Where they look to God. And realize that all that they were enjoying in him at this moment wasn't plan B. It was the purpose before time began. It was this way in which God was bringing the most glory to his own name. Yes, certainly, and we love it. The heavens declare it in Psalm 19. We heard it earlier as the thunder thundered. We see it in the flowers and the trees and all that he's made. We see the display of His beauty on every hand. Even things touched with sin yet retain the glory of God and speak it so. There's no language, there's no place where it's not heard. In Psalm 8, the Bible indicates that He's even set His his glory above the heavens. What does that mean? We see through a glass darkly. We see only part and piece. Have you ever looked out the door, somebody knocks on the door? You go and you look through that little hole. Boy, you can't tell much. You can see something. You can't tell much, right? That's kind of what we're doing, isn't it? My, my, we see some of it, but my. What we're doing every week is just trying to make the hole just a little bigger. Until... The day dawns and you're in his presence and you see him in all of his glory. You see, it's the purpose of the apostle and the purpose of the spirit of God that we would come to grips with the reason that God purposed and planned these things. It's the praise of God in these verses that's demanded. Notice here with me. In these places, in three, three different times, he says, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. What it, then is it, is, it, what is it then that the apostle is getting at? As we see God's motive and purpose, as we see his plan, what ought to be our... You get up from here and then you go your way and say, oh, that was good. That's nice. That's nice. To the praise of his glory. What in the world is this idea of his glory? 
if the heavens declare it. Peter makes it clear in 1 Peter 1 24, man's glory is fading. Let's just see what that might look like. Thad, six foot five, big, strong, burly man. One of these days, as time moves on, my dad used to be that tall, now he's about four inches shorter. What happened? His glory faded. The radiance of his being and purpose. There was a time you see men like Athletes could run up and down a field, shoot a basketball, but what now? They're confined to their wheelchair or their bed. They shuffle along like Earl Campbell. Why? Their glory fades. Every building you build, everything you construct, everything we put together one day, friend, no matter how you build it, no matter how well you plan it, no matter what the purpose in your heart is, it will fade. It's one thing that gets me most. I have to paint a house again and again and again. It fades. And sometimes we bring this very thinking over to the Bible. And we let it interpret the things that we see here. But you see the reality of the radiance of God in this matter of salvation. Demands praise from you and I as we understand it by the help and grace of God in Christ by His Spirit. You see it? He's left nothing undone. Everything's been done according to the counsel of His own will. He's designed it. It was conceived in his heart. It was put in place by his plan. He chose the right man. He accomplished everything, friend. What's left for us? Take our voices and add it to the multitudes. Sing through the ages. Sing to his glory. You see, the temple's been rent. There was a time when the Shekinah dwelled back there. Nobody saw it. Now what Paul understands and sees, it's been ripped asunder. God by His Spirit revealed it to His apostles. They've taken their voice and shared it to the multitudes. Here it is. Look at it. And then take your voice, gripped by your heart, as you understand these truths and sing to his name. A selfless giving up of your confidence in you and others and whatever else might be. Why would I call myself a Christian first? Because of this. To the praise of his glory. Brothers and sisters. Would you with me and with the scripture and with those who have seen these things together? Like this statement, but we all with open face. Beholding as in a glass. We don't see it like we one day will. But we see it yet. The glory of the Lord. Are being changed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. So as by the Spirit of the Lord.
You say, brother, I don't have time to look at that. I've got too much in this life to take care of. The cares of this world and the pursuit of wealth and riches and other things are taking up my time. It's not worth it. Right? So here God has declared for you and for me His purpose in this matter. He's given us the details of His plan. And He says the response ought to be this. We ought to take our voices and our hearts and worship Him as we see the radiance of His beauty declared in what He's done. He saved His friends, right? He saved a handful of good folks. No. He saved sinners. Let us give Him thanks. Would you with me bow? Father, this morning we can do nothing but praise You. You are indeed worthy of our voice of praise and honor. And glory, we love you and bless your name. Might your purpose and plan find its place in our heart and might our lips express it continually. Might we always know you love to save sinners. In Christ's name we pray.